How, how's everyone doing? All right. There's a, uh, because I'm, I'm such a serious news junkie, the first thing I do Sunday morning is go to the funnies in the uh, newspaper, to the comic section, um, and Non Sequiturs has got to be the greatest comic ever written. But besides that, there, there's another one. I think Rhymes with Orange, one of those. And, and one Sunday, there was this, uh, it was just a one-panel comic, and it was an elephant sitting on a um, therapist's couch. And the therapist was with his notebook, and the elephant's kind of looking up at the ceiling, and he's saying, sometimes I stand right in the middle of the room, and even then, no one will acknowledge me. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. As, as Stan mentioned uh, last, uh, last week, I read my resignation letter, and that leaves a lot of questions. That leaves a lot of things up in the air. Um, the reality of church is that it is lives that, Lord willing, are interwoven together, hearts interwoven together. It's not just information that's being transferred. It's not goods and services like a full-service station you pull up and get attended to and pull out, but it's a community where we walk together, we soldier together, we, we do life, and it's interwoven in so many, so many different ways. I think one of the things we need to acknowledge is that everybody is in a very different place with this news. And each person is in that place for, for, for right reasons uh, in, in terms of perspectives, in terms of connection, in, in terms of the rest of life and, and, and pressures and what's going on. And, and so this is affecting everyone in different ways. But recognizing that the cost of loving is grieving and that, that we need to be aware there's just going to be stages of grief that, that everyone's working through in different ways. That, that they're, you know, we need to talk about this is, this is what is sorrowful. This is what is confusing. This is where I hurt. This is where I'm angry. This is where I don't even know who to be angry with. This is, this is what is, is really disconcerting. And, and to admit, this is where my heart is. Because what we've seen in Scripture, what we've seen, what I've seen in six years and, and what many of you have seen for much longer, is that God is in the business of immediacy, of coming close right where we are, ministering to real people, not ministering to the projections that we have to others, and I'm a professional, so, so I get this, um, I, I get this very well, um, the projections that we have, how are you, I'm fine, I have it together, here's chapter and verse, here's the answer, and, and, and that's out there, God doesn't care about that person, that person doesn't exist, it's a figment of our, our minds, God cares about the real person who's hurting, who's angry, who's lost, who's confused, who doesn't know the next steps. And that's where God meets each and every one of us. This is a raw and a real journey for Mari and myself. And I can honestly say that we experience in equal parts three emotions that just sort of oscillate, thinking about past, present, future. That we, we experience grief. There's just, I, I'm shutting down in the week. Um, the, the only thing I can compare it to is, you know, caring for somebody who's close, who's dying. You just get overwhelmed and sometimes you shut down. And recognizing there is a grieving process that is difficult, but it is also a good thing. Because it's recognizing the good that God has in, in both sides and the necessity of recognizing that there's a cost. Pay it up front, pay it on the backside. Um, we're also experiencing peace, that in the midst of just 
an awful lot up in the air. It's a sense of wherever you go, there you are. But also, at least at this stage of the game, I can say, and here God is as well. One of the lessons that God has been teaching me is as much as I would want to run away from me, every time I do that, I run away from him. Because there is no place else God would rather be regarding me than sitting right with me. And so where is God when I hurt? Where is God when you hurt? He's right here with us. So to the extent that we'd run away from ourselves and what we're feeling and all of this, we're running away from God's ability to really minister to us. So there's an immediacy, and with that comes a a peace. But then there's equal parts terror as well, looking at a future that is completely unknown. There there is nothing on the horizon. All the effort went into clarity here, and now it's at the next step, and the next step is really a precipice, and there's nothing. So so if you guys have any leads, be, be, be appreciative. But all that to say, this is the reality. Grief, peace, terror, and it switches all the time, and it's confusing of who am I? Lord, how am I doing now? I thought it was this, and now it's that. And this too necessary in how God made our hearts. We're image bearers, image bearers of the Lord Most High. And whereas we could never exhaust with words all that that means, one thing that it means is that we are relational. We crave relationship, we traffic in it. And and relationships happen in so many different ways, from from the, the projection of the person up front to the individual relationships and all points in between. And that's a reality. You see, where God speaks to each of us is an incarnation. It's not just communication of knowledge. And that's what we're really going to look at today in terms of where, uh, what now, what next, what would the Lord have for us to do. So I'm calling a quarterback option. Um, we're we're going to take a break from the Gospel of John, which is where we've been going through. We'll come back starting in John 18 next week. But, but we're just going to do a little bit uh, of an aside and i uh, like to talk about, see if we have this slide up, the Wizard of Oz. My apologies for all of you, Cecil, I don't know, all of your Golden Age of Hollywood original version Wizard of Oz types. Um, but the Wizard of Oz, I think, is a really helpful uh, illustration um, to, to maybe help us walk this out a bit. Now, how many people are familiar with the Wizard of Oz, have seen, seen the Wizard of Oz, grew up with it? How many people saw Wicked? How many people sing in the shower? Okay. Um, Wizard of Oz is just a timeless classic for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and the backstory behind the making of the movie is amazing in that there's so many reasons it almost never got made. Um, this is the first time they gathered all of the extras that, that play, played. Um, they, they called themselves at the time little people, but there was a whole population um, that they got for the movie. And these people had grown up in isolation because of their physical condition and, and really out of community. And so all these people were like, oh my gosh, you're just like me. We get each other. This is great. And so it was like a four-month-long party. And they had the hardest time keeping everybody sober, keeping them together. Keeping It was just this craziness because it was a whole new world opened up. And that's one of about a thousand stories that are just, just fascinating. But, but in the midst of this chaos, they made the original movie, Wizard of Oz, and people were blown away. And, it, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's written, it's um, based on a, um, on a book series, actually. And it's a timeless story. 
You've probably figured out um, by this time there's two main Hollywood tropes that have been mined for gold at the, at the box office. One Hollywood trope is this, that there is you who's just an ordinary nobody just like anyone else. And you're going through your sad life just like everybody else's sad life and you're just usual. And then you discover somehow you're a sleeper agent. You're a princess. You're, you're a spy. You've inherited money. Something crazy happens and you're so much more than anyone ever thought you could be and then you have to integrate both horizons of your life as you know you are and this, this, this super critical reality and, and you put it together. There's the, the, uh, the other Hollywood trope or the storyline that's followed is the exact opposite. It's somebody else who's out there who's bigger than life and in the pursuit of trying to find this celebrity, this person, this person who can meet my needs, this person who will complete me, the person discovers, wow, they are more like me than I thought. And that's the surprising integration that happens. And if you break down most movies, they're, they're going to fall into one. There's a few exceptions maybe, but they're going to fall into one of, one of the other category. The, the latter is what The Wizard of Oz did, where on the surface level, this, this girl um, has a dream, you know, gets hit in the head, and all her, all her relatives are in the dream. But this dream is this alternate reality, which is sort of what everyone can step into. And in the story, there's this mythical wizard who, uh, who is able to meet whatever need you have. And so, as you're familiar with the story, Dorothy picks up all these characters along the way, and they each have a need for, for brains. You know, I would while away the hours conversing with the flowers. Um, the tin man, oil can, courage, with a lion. You know, I'm a lion-y out here. Um, and all of these people have a need that they perceive this wizard Great and powerful Oz is going to be able to meet for them. It was an expectation greater than what was realistic and already looking way beyond themselves. Well, in this movie, the, uh, um, Oz, Great and Powerful, this was the backstory of how the wizard got to be the wizard. Um, because as, you, as we discovered in the first movie, this amazing wizard that, that scared people, and there's a throne room and this huge apparition, and everybody's terrified, uh, it turns out to be just a regular man behind the curtain. And so the backstory is, how did a regular man get to inhabit the position of Oz, Great and Powerful? And I think this is helpful in, in study of human nature, of how we wrestle with the imminent, which is what is right in my face and super close, to help us get to the transcendent, that which is so far beyond us we're unable to connect with. And that's what I meant by incarnation. But before we go there, we're going to be looking at a very simple, very simple truth. If I can figure out how to, there we go. The man behind the curtain, just a man, right? Man behind the curtain is just a man, and that is for good, and that is for bad. I know the man behind the curtain. He's a good friend of mine, and he sucks far more than you would ever imagine. Spurgeon said this, um, Charles Spurgeon, and he said this to his young preachers who were going into ministry, and he knew they were going to encounter all sorts of opposition as they were making changes, they were laying down the gospel. He said, don't be overly upset or rush to defend yourself too quickly when someone speaks ill of you. Because the truth is, you are far worse than they suppose you to be. And so there's great freedom in that, embracing our humanity, embracing this is who I am, and, and no more. And no less. 
Um, if you don't believe me, talk to, talk to that, that woman there. She, man, she can tell you stories. Um, the man behind the curtain is just a man for good and for bad. Preaching is truth communicated through a personality. This is, a, this is something that was just hammered into me at, at, in seminary. And I never really understood what it meant until I was actually hooking and jabbing and doing this on a regular basis. Because it's not just conveying information. But it's the way that we do church. It's the way that we encounter Christ. It's, it's uh, using one person's voice to help each of us find our own voices in apprehending God. God did the very same thing. God had been communicating to his people in unmistakable terms. Fireworks on Mount Sinai. You even come close to the mountain, you're going to die. There's so much holiness around. Spoke in miracles, in plagues, in blessings, in miraculous deliverances, in dreams. God spoke to his people through the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. God laid down his word over and over and over again. We, we, we've got written word. We've got spoken word. We've got the priesthood. We have the prophets. I mean, it's just volume. The truth, the information was communicated to his people. But it still wasn't enough. God communicates in the world. All heaven displays the glory of the living God. God communicates within us. Each of us alternately defends or accuses our actions, our conscience. So God gave evidence without, within, generally. God spoke specifically. And still, all of that information wasn't enough. So the beginning of Hebrews tells us, although he spoke to the ancients, in all of these other ways, through revelation, through prophecy, through, through miracles, in these final days in which we're still in, the final chapter, just before it all comes to a close, God has spoken to us in the ultimate revelation, a son kind of revelation. There's no way to translate that phrase. It's this weird one. Um, he spoke to us in a son language. S-O-N, a language of intimacy, a language of vulnerability, an a language of, of familiar familiarity, um, a language that we get, it's imminent, it's real, we all come from families, right, for better or for worse, but it's also transcendent. This is who we think we are, this is who we ultimately are in Christ. Where did you think that trope came from, really? It's our story. And this is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So he spoke incarnationally by showing up and communicating, sometimes using words, but using his presence. He touched a leper and defiled himself. He allowed other people to defile him. He was close. He could be with the rich and powerful and equally as comfortable with the last, the least, the outcast. And he showed a son kind of revelation. It was the same truth, but it was walked out in relationship. It was walked out in imminence, in closeness. And people hung on it and it was attractive. Why? Because we are image bearers. That's how God made us. He made us relational. The eternity in our hearts doesn't just mean that there's nothing of this world that we can ultimately satisfy the cravings of a soul. But it means ultimately that we will not be satisfied. Or as Augustine said, we are imminently restless until we find our rest in him. And that's a relational rest. Cease striving and know that I am God. Cease all of your efforts and proving in all of this and know, relationally, experience that I am God. How do we do that? We do that incarnationally through one another. 
It's not just the truth content that we know that is absolutely important. Knowing what we believe, knowing our salvation, knowing the ground upon which we stand, that is essential. But that's a jumping off point, not the end point. How God speaks to all of us is through one another. We are necessarily by God incarnated in each other's lives so that as we walk out our faith, as we appropriate the truth, as we try it on, as we are debriding the barnacles of this world away from a soul that is beautiful, we are fleshing out for one another relationally. This is how we do faith. It's not just the what, it's the how, it's the why, it's the for whom. And this necessarily is contingent upon one another. Uh, Last year, I think we did an exercise where where I I challenged you, uh, name the last three captains of the last three championship World Cup teams. Crickets, right? Okay, who won um, the best uh, actress category last three years, the Oscars? crickets. Nobel Peace Prize winners for the last three years. Who won the Nobel Prize in medicine? Guys, come on. Medicine. World peace. Football. La Copa Mundial. I mean, come on. This is important stuff, right? Maybe different order for different people. Nobody knows, right? Why? Because to, to the world, you're one person. Okay? Now close your eyes. Think about somebody that really hurt you in the last year. Think about somebody that really, really messed you up growing up as a child. Think about somebody that you're estranged with right now. Your relationship is not what you'd want it to be. Now think about somebody who's blessed you in the last week, an unexpected encouragement. Think about somebody who was a real source of encouragement and support as you were growing up. Think about somebody whose relationship you really appreciate. It's a little easier, isn't it? Because while to the world you're one person, um, to one person you're the world. And that's how we're made relationally. And that's why this is difficult. Because we're image bearers. Because we crave relation. Because God teaches us through relation. And it's through the imminence of what God does relationally that he's able to bring us further beyond each of ourselves into what he's doing. Remember we're talking about the Gospel of John. I hope you remember, right? The last two months has been this farewell discourse. And it's Jesus trying to get into his disciples' heads. It is good that I go. It's been so good. And I'm not comparing myself to Jesus. This, this is not where I'm going with this, okay? Not, it just occurred to me. Whoa. Hubris. Lightning rod. You know, play safe here. Not where I'm going. But Jesus is trying to say, guys, you don't see the full picture here. You don't see what, why it's good that I go away. Because you think there's intimacy in that we're, we're together and we're locked arms and we're doing ministry and Jesus does something and the disciples do something and Jesus says something and the disciples say something. And it's this, this apprenticeship. And they're saying, man, I can't imagine without you, the master, because I'm not ready to be a journeyman. I'm still an apprentice. And they're clinging on to him. He's like, he's like trying to go to the car and you know, kids are you know, dragging on his legs. And he's like trying to shake off Peter. And John, he's like, guys, come on. I've got to go to the Father. And, and there's this, this whole confusion that's going on and and so he says this perfect relationship that I have with a father that you see that you crave that confounds you that's what you're gonna have with me but it's not gonna happen till I go and you learn to stand on your feet and you look down and you see what you're standing on 
And that's all that I have taught you and all that I've led you. I'm giving you my spirit. So that intimacy that I had with the Father, everything he says, I say. Everything he does, I do. Everything he feels, I feel. That same intimacy you're going to have with me when I go to the Father and I give you my spirit. Fast forward 25 years, and this is exactly what Paul is writing about to the church in Corinth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is a model for just exactly what Jesus was talking about. Okay, so now we're looking back at the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit. Do you see the relationship between John 17? I would be in them, they would be in me, and we are one as you are one. The relationship in John 14, 15, and 16 of as I am intimately connected to the Father and and give out, it's the same relationship. You haven't received spirit of of the world. You've received my exact spirit. It's going to be the same way. Um, This is what we speak, uh, words taught by the spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with, spiritual, with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. This is an important distinction. It's not saying that we have all knowledge. It's not saying that we can judge and adjudicate in every situation. What it's saying is everything we need, we have in God's spirit. Everything we need, connective, relationally, imminently, and and bringing us on, we have the mind of Christ. The very heart that he had for his disciples and that degree of intimacy, we have that in God's spirit. But there is one thing that shuts this down. There's one thing that stops the flow. That's one thing that pulls it up short. And all that God has invested and all that he's doing and his desire and his passion, his presence, and realizing that there's one thing that's going to stop it. Now, again, let me be very clear. This is not Bethel. We are not here. But this is a concern anytime there's a major change because Satan knows our weaknesses and he doesn't fight fair. The human heart has not changed appreciably in thousands of years, and this is just where we go. And when we don't know or we don't have enough to cling on to, we want to start driving things into the wall to have handholds and anchors. And this is where we need to be careful. You see... The reason Paul brought this up is he was saying, this is the ideal. This is how a church flows. This is how a body flows. This is how my love is manifest and emanated through so that you soak it up so much, there's too much and you have to give it away and it spills out the ever-living stream of, of water. And Paul was writing this to Corinthian church because that was not the case. This is a church that had more of the Holy Spirit than any other church. They had more gifts, more miracles, more manifestations of the Spirit, but they were stuck. And they were stuck because they couldn't get past their own part of the church that they could see. And the whole thing shut down. What we tend to do is say, okay, well, how can we manage the bad situation? Jesus always, always, always takes it to the original. You can talk about divorce. I want to talk about marriage and commitment. That's where we begin. You can talk about... um, 
all, all of these other uh, issues with the church and how do we work it through, but I want to take it through to my heart and my flow and why I went to the cross. So having laid out, this is God's desire. This is the automatic flow through from the cross into us. The things that shuts it down is what Paul was writing about and we find at the beginning of chapter 3. This is not us. But if we're not careful, it could be for any of us, me included. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. I gave you easy teaching, not deeper teaching. For you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. Since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans, i.e. without the Spirit of God? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not just human beings? For after all, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow grow. God makes things grow. God makes things grow. The growth that you have experienced, the joy that you know in the Lord, what you have overcome, the internal wrestlings, the external pressures, the posture of our life, the attitude of our heart, any and everything that was good, it was God who was making it grow and God who will continue to make it grow. And here's the challenge now in going ahead when there's a lot of unknown. We need to recognize we're not going to have all the answers we want, maybe not even the answers we need. But we have to dial down into what is the next step? Where has God been growing and where would he continue to make it grow? What is the new growth and the challenge that I have experienced? That is of God for a purpose for a time such as this. And that continues and moves forward. You see, Apollos was the rock star preacher from um, Alexandria. That was the center of preaching. That was like the coolest thing. It's hard to imagine. I mean, it was, it, it was sort of like the reality show and, and following him around. And the greatest thing you could be was a rhetor- rhetorician, a public speaker. Can you imagine what a, what a whack place that must have been? That You know, the, 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 the rock stars were the public speakers. And these, the, Apollos just had a way with words. People hung on every word. They loved to listen to him. And so Apollos rolls up into um, the church of Corinth after Paul had planted it. Paul is hooking and jabbing with all of these issues and working through the hard heart issues and getting in fights and just just. Working working it out, and Apollos is just up there laying down the word, and everyone's loving him. So there's a group of people that slugged it out with Paul, and they're like, Paul's doing the hard work, man. Apollos is just, you know, Johnny come lately. And then others like, oh, man, I met God so well through the teachings of Apollos. Who's this Paul guy? He's always in the corner crying with somebody. I don't see what he's doing. And they're two just very different perspectives of the church, both necessary, both right, both what God has. And Paul and Apollos could step back and recognize Man, we're just doing what God made us to do. God's the one that gives the juice. God's the one that puts gas in the car. God's the one that brings growth, and he gets the glory. That's what it's all about all along. Got to move on. But this was a big concern for Paul because he was saying the joy that Christ had as he was praying this for the disciples. When John 17, when he was praying, I don't ask just for these disciples, but everyone, Paul included now, everyone who would believe through their word, I ask for this, that they would have this unity. Not uniformity, not thinking the same thing 
but united in Christ even though we're different. That there'd be this unity, that there would be this, this, this connection, this purpose far beyond where, where we end or where I end and where you begin. So the rest of the story is this. God's saying, this is God's desire for this flow of the Holy Spirit. This is a danger and a risk we need to look for when we start dividing and conquering. It can be is. In other words, for somebody to be right, it doesn't mean that somebody else has to be wrong. It can just be an is thing. So when we start to divide and conquer in that, we just have to admit we each have very different experiences and perspectives, and they're all valid and they all fit together, and they're all necessary. But that's the challenge between the imminence, what I connected to right up close, and now it's pulled away, and the transcendent where God is calling us all along. Paul continues to remind the Corinthians, don't you know that you, that's plural, y'all, that's why they translate it yourselves, that you yourselves collectively are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This used to be the verse, the one verse that's trotted out, you can't commit suicide or God's going to get you. It has nothing to do with suicide. It's not talking about an individual whatsoever. This is talking about the collective church. Okay? Go back to chapter 2. The Spirit is flowing. Who knows the mind of God? Who's given him advice? But we have the mind of Christ. We have that same degree of intimacy and disclosure. And shall I not with my friends let them know what I am doing? God invites us to participate with him. This is just an absolute amazing thing. So this flow of the spirit is God's desire. And he's saying, that is important to me. That is the new humanity that I've redeemed with my blood at terrible cost. And you matter to me. Can you hear that? You matter to God. You matter to God. You matter to God. God takes this so seriously that when the church is together and firing and connected and there's this free flow of the spirit, that is the manifestation of God in this world. And any attacks on the church, he takes that pretty, pretty seriously. Because we are literally the body of Christ in that. And that is God manifesting himself in our midst. You've heard me use the example before about spokes on a wheel and unity. And I meant to steal my daughter's bike and take it apart and bring in a wheel for you. But I forgot, so I'll just do this instead. Um, imagine this is a spokes of a wheel, right? Uh, okay, work with me here. I spoke too soon, right? Um, and so you can imagine this is the wheel and this is the rim and there's spokes all going to the middle. All of us as individuals, we attach to the church along the rim, right? It's like the rolling stone, you know, it's, whoa, here we go. Yeah. Um, we're rolling it and um, we pick up people, right, along the outside. Christ is in the middle. Okay. There is no way you can get closer to Christ without necessarily getting closer to one another, right? You can go around this way, you can go around that way, you're just as far away from Christ. But if you go toward Christ, you are necessarily getting closer to everyone else. And you're getting much closer to everyone else who's getting closer to Christ. That is the church. That is incarnation. And that is why God does what he does. That he wires us all together so that there's ways that we can see beyond ourselves, feel beyond ourselves, hope beyond ourselves. That we would have the courage to continue pressing in toward the center, pressing in toward one another. And that's the immediacy of the relationships that God has and the modeling and the way of doing church. But what has never changed is God's desire and draw in the center and that he is at work 
in our lives unthwarted all along with this. Okay, I might be overreaching with this example, but I'll try it anyway. How many people watch figure skating or know what I'm talking about? Um, there's this one move, and everyone does it. I think somebody tried it once in their 30s. Now everybody had to do it. But it's, it's called a scratch spin or something. But it's basically when the... Okay, I, I'm like a cow on ice on ice skates. Okay, so I'm not an ice skater. But where they're doing the twirl thing, and, you know, they're all graceful, and they're doing this, and they're spinning around. Okay? You, you, work with me here. Work with me, okay? They're, they're spinning around, and they're doing this ballerina thing, right? And they're kind of spinning around sort of slowly, right? But then they start drawing their arms in, and they're just whipping around. Whoa. They're just whipping around as, as fast as they can go, right? Do you, do you get that? They have their arms out. They're, they're rotating slowly. They pull their arms in. Okay, for you science wonks, it's called conservation of angular momentum. But basically, um, the, whole, the whole thing has to stay the same, right? When you get closer to the center, the whole thing starts spinning faster and faster and faster. When you get further away from the center, the whole thing slows down. Okay, now remember the same example that I have here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That intimacy that we're all modeled on the cornerstone, we're we're looking like Christ, sounding like Christ, as we collectively all look from our disparate places to Christ, and we see him, he's drawing us all toward him, toward the center. Guess what? Church starts spinning a lot faster. The more we pull away from one another, we pull away from God, we're on the outside, the the way it slows down. And that's why we have chapter 2 and chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. Because this happens to every church, Because every human heart remains the same. And so this is the challenge that we have when the immediate, when the imminent is changing. And the areas in which we naturally connect or or in some ways have, have God has been able to mediate his presence. It's really difficult to see, well, how do I get to the transcendent now? What is the rest of the story with this uncertainty in my life? What's unchanged? God's heart for his church is unchanged. The sacrifice that God made, where he says it is finished, where it is worth it, the having seen the joy which is all y'all set before him, he despised uh, the cross. Um, that we are his motivation, and that is unchanged, our completion in Christ, the fulfillment of his joy. What is unchanged? God's heart for each person here. That he knows you so much better than you know yourself. He knows your next step so much better than you could guess or predict. And he wants the very best for you. And he will work through so many different alternate means to bring us to the same place of surrender, of grace, of joy. God's desire and purpose for our growth has remained unchanged. God's desire for the mission of his church remains unchanged. And that is our greatest hope. That is our greatest encouragement uh, with this and and working it through. Not going to lie to you. This is difficult. It's scary. It's risky. But our faith has been scary, difficult, and risky every single day since we began. And that hasn't thwarted us because of the faithfulness of God. What we're able to see, we can see much further down the road at times. We can see uh, sometimes the, um, the darkness settles in when, and we don't know. And this is the great challenge when we don't know what to do. Who do we know? Who do we know and how does that make a difference in our lives as we move forward?
I've been preaching to you for six years. And um, hopefully, despite my, my brokenness, despite my, my all too um, much humanity, um, that you were able to see uh, God through a broken vessel speaking to you and drawing, uh, bidding others to come. And it's that same God that will meet each and every one of us and continue to work his purposes. My philosophy in teaching all along has been, um, I believe the pulpit is at the same level as the pew. That's why I could roll the communion lid along the, you know, with no twinge of conscience whatsoever. Um, I believe that the pulpit and the pew are at the same level. Because it's not, I have mastered this, I've mastered the gestalt, I have all the answers, I'm the educated one, I'm the holy one, and, and I will, you know, you know, hand out some collected wisdom, you know, from, from my awesome life. But in my brokenness, and in my panic, and in my terror, and in my sin, and in my questions, and in my humanity, this is where I have found a feast, as a starving beggar. And if I could point anyone to that to do the same. Um, that is absolutely worth it, what I've done. I apologize if perhaps some of my methods have been offensive. That was certainly not the case, or not the intent. Um, but again, it's that sense of we're all in this together. And in our collective brokenness, and our collective questions, and our collective hearts that do need binding up, the joy that we have is God is unchanged in his commitment to us. God is unchanged in his story with us. And it's my prayer that in this time when it is less certain that we can fall back into his arms, that we can feel the cadence of his heart, his heart beating for each of us as we find our way in him. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you know us, that your purposes and plans from the beginning of history aren't thwarted. And that you truly cause all things to work together for good for all of us who called according to your purposes. We thank you that you are our hope, Lord. We thank you that um, it's not a matter of having to have all the answers and know and put it all together. But in the tension, in the weirdness, in the, in the, in the questions, we can discover more of your heart. We can discover more of how you would want to use us and put us into the mix. And how even in our brokenness, we can minister to one another in incarnating you. I thank you, Father. It's not just about information that we get and we check and we nod and we fall into line. But it is a way of doing life that you delight to incarnate through each of us, to each of us, that you would be glorified in ways that are real. In your name we pray.